0: on the verge on the verge is presented by cure cannabis used for research and education the medical industry is steadfastly looking to help millions of patients that suffer from injuries related to repetitive motion sports trauma and many other orthopedic injuries as well as skin disorders mental disorders cancer and osteoporosis to name only a few of the other underlying conditions that billions suffer from each day. On average in this country we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day. With the cost of pharmaceutical medicines increasing, patients deserve natural alternatives that are not only more cost effective but also safer for them and society. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing a therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you or check out their website at www.curemich.com. Cure, cannabis used for research and education. On The Verge is also brought to you by Green Scene, Green Scene is a family owned company recognized as the Sizzle Award winner for outdoor living in Williamson County. We design and construct areas to blend with the natural landscape of your yard. That can include outdoor spaces, gazebos, fire pits, outdoor kitchens, and yes, putting greens. We understand the importance of your home. That's why we never settle for anything but the best. Green Scene also provides multiple teams with professional landscape maintenance, irrigation, and outdoor lighting. Welcome to On The Verge. Uh, today's special guest, and this is a special guest for sure, is a serial entrepreneur, community leader, and the 2020 Most Admired CEO Lifetime Achievement Award winner, Beth Chase. Beth, how are you today?
1: Great. How are you?
0: I'm doing fantastic. Well, I, don't, I always kind of start my podcast off with a big one. I don't. I don't ease into. Oh the, dear. <laughs> um, so, my, Nashville being the it city, or one of the it cities. In the United States, probably in the world for that matter, is interesting in some ways because it's growing so fast. It has a Dallas in the 80s and an Atlanta in the 90s Don't say that. feel to it. <laughs> but we have, I can't speak for Dallas or Atlanta, but I know that the founding fathers and the founding families of this city created a very good game plan and vision for its future and whether they expected this many Californians and New Yorkers and Chicagos to be ascending on it simultaneously as they are right now uh, is fascinating to me. With you having a very good knowledge of the founding father's family, so to speak, of the entrepreneur side of this city, what do you feel like as an entrepreneur yourself and a community leader in Nashville, what do you think are the important things for Nashville to pay attention to right now and its ascending radical growth and strength so that we don't become what we, you know, Dallas or Atlanta? The Dallas
1: or Atlanta of today, yeah, right? that's right. Gosh, that's a great question. Uh, but first of all, I'll say that I've, that the city has been so successful because of some real foundational things. So in some respects you've got to continue to play to those strengths. Um, We are very entrepreneurial. We are very creative. And we're a very diverse community. Um, You know, from an industry perspective, which has made us very strong over a long period of time. And then I would say the... Uh, one of the big reasons that Nashville's been successful is the public-private partnership that's that's happened over um, over these decades. So we've definitely got to continue to have diverse businesses and uh, foster the creative uh, entrepreneurial community as we continue to move forward to 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 sustain that success. I think that we have to pay real attention to the infrastructure. Yeah, and um, uh, I think with the pandemic, though, we uh, it was a little bit of a, a blessing in disguise in terms of transportation. So we we got a a little bit of a buy on that, mm-hmm. but we but that's going to come back around. But I think we've got to pay attention to the infrastructure in the city, and then uh, really think smartly about the growth. Um, I love what we're doing with Oracle and Amazon and. Even the um, you know some of our big existing companies like Assurian mm-hmm. and the growth that's happening, um, bringing more technology uh, companies into Nashville, I think is really critical for the future. But the smart growth around um, placing those bets and and where we're placing those bets in the city and with which companies quality quality companies like yeah. that. Um, I, I'd also say that there's. A real trend to um, bringing people into the city as opposed to companies, so there's some things, there's some shifts that we have to do there yeah. to bring pockets of high quality professionals into the city that are working from home but but um, have businesses that are headquartered in Silicon Valley, but they 'll also help us change Nashville i think for, for continued for the better
0: yeah I think it 's fascinating it 's kind of turned into silicon valley east mm mm-hmm. And I remember vividly, I've had I've had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with Marty Dickens. And Marty often told me, he says, Virgil, especially in the, when I've spent a lot of time with him in the economic crisis of late 07, 08, 09. Right. Teaching him golf. And <laughs> he was like, you know, Virgil, what makes Nashville so unique? And we're going to feel the pain, but Nashville's so diverse that some of our biggest businesses thrive when the economy goes down and they stay and they stay relatively strong when the economy is good, but they really help prop up our city in the inevitable every 10 to 12 year dip in the economic cycles. And that's why you should consider making Nashville your home for the long term, because there's some insulation from the, the struggles of the markets in this city, and i have never really understood. At that time, I was really young, but now I like I see, like when everything is going up, we're going up with it, and when everything goes down, we don't dip as much. Talk to us about what do you think the history is of the city like that, and how are we able to do that? And sustain, you know, well, yeah, we I think in the '08 we saw like a 29% dip versus Miami was like 80, and Atlanta was in the mid 70s. There was a massive, crushing blow to many cities, and it, we took it. We took a good punch in the face, but nothing like a lot of cities did. What is our key to success?
1: Well, I think uh, certainly some of what I'm going to say does not apply to the pandemic. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Because there were entirely different dynamics there. But I think the healthcare industry in Nashville is so strong and has been. Sort of counter cyclical, not you know, not really um, having as low a low during during those times. And there's uh, creativity and innovation in the healthcare space in Nashville, right? Mm-hmm. So we're we're the healthcare capital uh, of the U.S., maybe the world, certainly on the services side. Mm-hmm. And um, that that uh, industry continues to evolve and 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 innovate. So I think that's a piece of it. Uh, the fact that we have so many colleges in Universities here um, has has really helped, um, and then I think that that again we have such diverse businesses here, uh, from Bridgestone and Nissan to tractor supply to uh, you know third party logistics uh, powerhouses like Geotus um, and others hmm. that um, are constantly staying ahead of the competition. And uh, I mean, they're just quality companies. I don't know another city that has such quality businesses that are so diverse. Yeah. Uh, And I think that really helps us. I guess I would also say uh, on the other side, um, the entrepreneur in Nashville, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm plugged into that, um, and Nashville's always been an entrepreneurial city, and that's where a lot of the job growth comes to, so when, when there's a challenge in an industry, it, it creates an opportunity for innovation, and I think Nashville always steps up to that.
0: Mm-hmm. Very true. I think one of the most important things for my podcast today with you is to shine light on the, the strengthening and empowering of women in, it, in an entrepreneurial mindset because you did it in a time in which it was even more shocking to the outside. Oh, what she's doing this. She's doing... And I really have never bought into the limits pieces. It's more of, it's a mindset that you choose to have. And so I'm interested, what is it that you could provide our listeners, the female, the girls that are listening here, to dream big that there's nothing that you can't do and a lot of the walls that are created are created in your own mind. Where did your entrepreneurial spirit come from and what was that key kick in the pants, so to speak, that made you jump from corporate America to be an entrepreneur? It's
1: a great question. And I didn't really think that I was an entrepreneur when I was younger in, Mm -hmm. in my career. But as I look back, both my parents we're entrepreneurs. So I had that entrepreneurial blood, I guess, and as uh, DNA. Um, I started my career with IBM and I was really fortunate to spend 12 years at IBM and I learned so much. I got a great foundation in uh, sales, I got a great foundation in healthcare um, and in technology. And then I took my first leap and decided uh, there was one day, and I think this, this, Plays into your question some, as a woman in particular, um, I feel like I had certain um, inflection points in my career that also parallel personal uh, Mm -hmm. moments in my career, but I was uh, taking on more and more responsibility at IBM, and I was starting to see that I would be traveling more and more in my job, and I had young twin boys at home at the time, and I didn't Really want to do that, you know. I was struggling because I wanted to have that career and, and and be a mom too. Sure. And so I decided to start my first company and and take the leap and and leave uh, IBM and and start a technology consulting firm. And um, I loved it. I mean, that's just when I realized that I truly was where, where I needed to be grew that business for, for nine years and then ended up selling out of that business and starting C3 consulting. And there was an inflection point there as well. Um, But, uh, you know, grew that over 13 years. But I would say, um, you know, one of the things that I say to young women in their careers today is to believe in yourself you know, there's nobody else that's going to believe in you more than 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 you, and to be bold um, and to to to, you know, take that step forward into the unknowns. Both times I started those companies, it was taking a giant step into the unknowns, mm-hmm. and a lot of times people see the worst. They they imagine the worst when there's a a blank canvas in front of them. Oh my gosh, what if I fail? What if this happens? What if that happens? And I've always taken that moment to visualize what's the best possible thing that could happen. And so I talk to people about that as well. Um, If you can dream it, you can achieve it. And to just go for it. We spend so much time worrying about Failure and instead I try to flip that and, and uh, dream it and then just put all my energy towards it.
0: Yeah, I'm a big, a big Tony Robbins fan. Tony Robbins is like, say yes and figure it out. Yeah, exactly. Don't turn, don't turn down a great opportunity. Right. Over imagined fear. Right. Just say yes and figure it out. And that's what I've done on my own as well, which is I don't have a a, a broadcasting background at all didn't do it but i've done radio for 19 years tv for 20 years and now i've been doing this podcast for three and public speaking whatever i don't have any degrees in that but when i was asked to do radio for the first time i'm like yeah yeah I, why I, not why not well, i don't know what it's going to be but i can talk golf until i'm blue <laughs> in the face that can't be hard but it was when i got behind the microphone and i realized whew, everything that i say here is going to be heard right and I wasn't prepared for that. So I, I put logic in front. Like, what's, I always did radio. I do this. What is the question that people want to hear me ask? Or what's the answer that people have always wanted to know? Because I won't give stock, boring answers on right. radio or TV. I'm, I'm not afraid to go in depth. And many times on the golf channel, when I did do that, they would come down on me hard because I was being too clear. And people don't understand that. And I'm like, that's a lie. But it's interesting, you know, the ability to say yes and figure it out yeah. is super powerful. And it also goes in in the face of many of the people, including Bob Knight, says, Yes will get you in trouble way more than no ever will. Mm-hmm. And you're always balancing, you know, what does that mean versus say yes and figure it out. And I think a lot of those things come from intuition of the facts at hand. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly there are plenty of things that you could say yes to that have negative impacts. But when you're talking about being an entrepreneur, you have good intentions to be successful at something. And I think that's really important for people to hear.
1: I do too. And I think, first of all, there's incredible power in positive thinking. And so, and, and, visualization and Mm -hmm. that that happens in sports and in in biz i learned that when i was uh young and playing tennis but also it takes grit so you've got to visualize where the positive the most positive where where you want to head and then grind through that as an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. i mean really those are two two big uh, characteristics of a successful entrepreneur.
0: Yeah, and I think your tennis career, which is interesting, we're going I want to delve into that, is the fact that I've I played baseball and golf, you played tennis. Okay. So we have this vision of what we'd like our three set victory to look like. <laughs> and then all good game plans are good all the way up until you get punched in the face, so to speak, and then you have to adapt. Mm-hmm and there's worth the Same is true with
1: business. That's yes. right.
0: That's right. So it's like the adaptability and the resilience of your best attempt that day not working and having to then rely on secondary and third and fourth level strengths to win. So I always I have played a lot of tennis, not at, certainly not a competitive, level, but I love tennis. Is it always found it fascinating to me how awesome and malleable Roger Federer was in which he could win with his serve, he could win with the volley, he could win at the net, and you never knew what was going to be his strategy because he had a game plan that had ladders to it. Like, I'm going to play my game until... It would make sense that Nadal's going to try to take (laughs) away my strength. So my next attempt to rebut that is this. And then if he does this, I'm going to do that. That, to me... Is what has set you up for success that you just didn't realize it when you were 14, 15 years old. Is that when you were, you had probably had certain strengths in your tennis that you relied on. And then as soon as you found somebody that was close to your talent, to equal to your talent, and they try to take that away, it first probably rattled you a shade. And then you just, you found another part of your game that could still help you win. Talk to us about your, your tennis career, going to the Boletarian Academy, and the things that you may not have understood that you learned when you were 14 to 18 or going to Vanderbilt, but you now employ now and you look back on like, wow, that that's eerily similar to a match that I played against so-and-so or <laughs> my career at Vanderbilt or what have you.
1: Don't make me uh, remember any names of the people that i will played. <laughs> Well, I'll give you a little sense of the tennis and then remind me to parallel yeah. that to, to business. Um, my dad, you know, there wasn't the internet back when I started playing tennis. Uh, there wasn't um, an easy way to research uh, places like Nick Volatari's, but my dad was a trailblazer in that. And he, he got all of uh, his, I have two siblings, two girls, uh, two sisters and a brother. Mm-hmm. So the three girls all played tennis, my brother play golf. And all three girls went, went to Volitaries. And uh, somehow my dad found that. But we ended up uh, going to Bolitaries And I was there. Uh, for me, it was really about making sure that I got a good tennis scholarship uh, to a great school. Mm-hmm. I knew I wasn't good enough to, to go pro. I think there's a certain point where you're physically good enough and the, the differential between amateur and pro is all
0: Mental. mental
1: at that mm-hmm. point. And of course I was pretty strong mentally but I knew I wasn't quite at that, that level so I was there really to get a good tennis scholarship but it was an amazing experience. We played tennis. Uh, first of all we went to we went to a private school but we only had uh, we only went to school in the mornings. We got um, An exemption on (laughs) PE, an exemption in religion. Mm -hmm. I guess tennis was our PE and religion at the time. (laughs) And we missed study hall. And so we would hop on the bus. They'd give us a little sack lunch, and we'd take off for the courts. We'd play three or four hours of tennis every day. And we would uh, do weights every other day, and we'd run on the beach three miles a day. And I hated that at the time, but that's my favorite thing to do now is to run run on the beach. beach. Um, just something about that uh, brought back those memories, but it was it was hard and awesome at the same time. And you would play all day and you'd only get about five minutes with Nick. And you would you would get on that court with Nick, and you would be so damn focused, you know, just I am going to hit every ball over the net. I'm not going to let him yell at me, and I'm mm-hmm. going to I'm going to show him how good how good I am. Um, but at, that was an incredible experience. I was only there a year. Ended up getting a scholarship to Vanderbilt, which, you know, I, I sort of look back on my career and life, and I draw everything back to tennis. Tennis taught me perseverance. Taught me competitiveness, mm-hmm. uh, which you you know bring bring through to to business. Taught me that grit, as I as I mentioned, um, and uh, so if I th- if I think about, uh, I was going to tell you something and I forgot it. That's okay. And <laughs> that won't be the last time I do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that that just stick with itness, I think, uh, helped me as an entrepreneur for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so if I think about parallel with business and, uh, and sort of bringing that forward, um, it, it was really um, never giving up. Um, and um, the thing that really was interesting as far as winning was that I realized if Beth, you've hit thousands of balls today you know, how can you lose? And I would say that to myself. And that was a level of confidence through practice and and, and hitting the ball time and time again over the net mm-hmm. um, made me realize that I could walk out and be confident in, in doing that. And I think that comes through in business as well.
0: Yeah. It's interesting you say this. And something that you touched on that is always on my radar screen in my, in my main job, which is coaching golf, is that me personally, I'm a good player, but the fear of failure at the top end seems a lot more overwhelming than the fear of failure to get a college scholarship. Or it's at that top level where you say like, okay, you get that physical point, you have all the physical gifts. And then there's that I can't sometimes, it's different for each player. So some people are afraid to go all in and fail because it makes them feel like they're a failure. Right. And then there's people that go all in and they don't really care if they make it or not. They're just all about giving their best effort and some people make it and some people don't. Right. But to me, what it blew me away on my personal story is that all the golf tournaments that I played in, how nervous I was getting ready to compete and whatever gave me self-doubt that I could reach at the highest level as a player. But at age 28, I'm coaching Brent Snedeker at the masters and there was not a shred of doubt that I was going to fix it. No, Anything that came up, I was going to be able to handle. Do you feel like in your rise and the ascension in tennis and that, You finally go, "Mm, maybe I'm not Steffi Graf. Maybe I'm not Chris Everett. And you you step down from chasing that dream, but you later found all of the work that you did to become the best version of a tennis player. You realize, okay, I'm not there, but I am here. And that mentality that you, you can say that you wish you had as a tennis player that take you to the next level, took you to the next level in business. Do you feel like that's accurate in your in your story that you're you didn't believe at the highest level you could play in tennis, but you did use all of those gifts that you knew you could play in the entrepreneurial world and succeed like Steffi Graf did?
1: Well, that's a really interesting question. <laughs> you know, I, I I you're making me think about you know back when I was in college, thinking mm-hmm. about um, okay, how far can I take this? And I guess maybe that that wasn't a desire of mine, you, mm, you know? Yeah. I played tennis. I played competitively. I enjoyed it most of the time and started enjoying it less when I was in college. And perhaps that's because I started seeing a bigger world and taking these, you know, major in math and economics, took a lot of computer science classes. And if I'm taking myself back to that moment, it really... Um, was that I was starting to get those business juices going. I remember when I graduated from Vanderbilt, I was so excited to start a job because I wanted to actually get paid for the work Mm
0: -hmm. that I was doing
1: because basically tennis is a job, right? Mm -hmm. So um, maybe those those business juices were flowing, starting. It was shifting that competitiveness from tennis into – business was really what happened more than anything. Mm-hmm. I definitely think that that fueled my career yeah. and gave me a lot of building blocks to be successful as, as an entrepreneur. I will say that I never... Um, I just grew companies, you know. I yeah. never really thought, oh gosh, I'm I'm going to be the Monica Sellis or the Chris Everett of of being an entrepreneur. Um, I never really thought about myself that way. I just woke up every day and and uh, marched straight towards that goal. Yeah. that goal. Yeah. And as you said earlier, adapted and pulled out the next bag of tricks and the next bag of tricks uh, as as the world changed or uh, as the business changed to to be able to continue to move towards that or change the goal.
0: Sure, absolutely. Um,
1: so I never really thought about being that entrepreneur at the highest level, whatever that is. Yeah, whatever, whatever that. that definition is. Because uh,
0: like to me, I think this is where I got in my, my life and I see it in some of the people that I've interviewed. Being the greatest or a great athlete is measurable. Right. Being a great coach or a great business leader... Has a level of subjectivity to it that is no, there is no real definition, right? And I'm not I was never one that I wanted to be pigeonholed into a definition. I like to be able to free float and be creative because I don't know who I'm going to be tomorrow. Life has to happen to me today, and it might impact me right. tomorrow. Exactly. And I never fell in love with the selfishness that it takes to be the highest level athlete. But I do love the selflessness it takes to help and guide others. Yes.
1: And that's what you were making me think about. It's that, you know, a lot of people in the entrepreneurial world say, oh, the definition of a successful entrepreneur is you had an exit. And I, that used to drive me crazy hmm. because when I started C3, I had no interest or idea or even vision of, I'm going to grow this thing really fast and sell, sell it. it. You know that's not the objective. That wasn't my objective at all. So I think, as I fast forwarded through that, and now look back, um, I think the 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 definition of success is more around what, how do we impact the clients? How do we impact the community? What impact did I have on the team mm-hmm. um, and the culture? And um, I watch. I'm watching that live on right now. Yeah. Uh, now that I've retired we were able to prepare the next generation to lead that business and, and create that level of sustainability. And to me, that's more success. Yeah, that's um, awesome. Exiting is not mm-hmm. a definition of success in my mind. And I think entrepreneurs fall into that trap. They mm-hmm. ha- they have a shiny object they've fallen in love with. Maybe the market doesn't even need it, but they're trying so desperately to, to rev that business up and, so that they can sell it and, and have that definition of success.
0: Interesting. One of your highlights um as i've investigated your career and you just mentioned it and i think it's a dying piece in the world is culture and the importance of if you want your company to be successful it's not just the bottom line right and there's where a lot of people make huge mistakes that they become bottom line readers not human readers where what were your key moments in your in your developmental life where you recognized that maybe the intangible piece of super success is not the bottom line but the culture that you you create for the people that you're relying on to help you achieve your mission is fully fulfilled.
1: Yep. Well, I think I learned so much from the first business that I started I started that business with another with a business partner who's 20 years older than me mm-hmm. and we were 50-50 business partners which was a very interesting story um, but I learned what to do and what not to do in that and that's when I really learned that culture comes from the top. So when I started C3 Consulting from day one I wanted it to have my fingerprints all over it mm-hmm. and I, while I was a math and econ major and had a lot of that side of the brain working in in my career I ended up Really uh, balancing that with a, with the people side, and so from day one, um, I hired some really critical leaders that uh, aligned in the values, my values, and and the vision. And then we went about um, really describing and defining what was special about us mm-hmm. and what was different about us, and and the expectations uh, and the environment that we wanted to to create in the business. And so many companies do that, and they write core values, and they're on the wall, and nobody lives by them. But sure. what we sought to do was create a deeper meaning in the business than just going out and solving client problems, which was extremely important, mm-hmm. but to create a deeper meaning. So we um, we had something we called Leverage the Collective, which is really how do you team to solve client problems, community problems, support one another, get the best answer mm-hmm. and um, and and leaning on somebody else is actually a strength rather than a weakness and in the corporate world that's often a, a weakness, but we made it a strength oh, by leaning on each other and supporting one another. And so that connecting and collaborating was huge in our mm-hmm. business. And then we just embedded all of that in everything that we did uh, very intentionally and created meaning um, out of the work and the relationships. Mm-hmm. I think it, when it all is said and done, it's all about the relationships and yep. we were creating those real relationships and, and connecting and and working on stuff together
0: yeah um, the the lost art of human connection, yes, the stinking phone has begun the process of making it more challenging for those that don 't keep it as an intent mm-hmm. uh, and I think we 're going to those who have hidden behind the devices for the fear of being rejected or the fear of not being good enough they they can't run from that for the rest of our life and it's a big concern of mine and that's why I spend so much of my time with the with the team and all the people that I I mentor is that we're wired for human connection mm-hmm. and we have we're slowly pulling back because of what is it fear is it Is it just people are so afraid to struggle and feel pain that they avoid it? And the avoidance is only going to bring a different level of pain. And that's what I I try to pass on. It's like, you're sacrificing one pain for another one. And Mm -hmm. the only thing that we can tell you is that you might know what this pain is. And you're refusing to stare it in the face and work through it. But this pain that's coming behind is not a pain that any generation has really ever had. So you're heading into an unknown level of pain if you stop connecting with humans.
1: Right. And the pandemic didn't help.
0: And the pandemic did not help. No, it didn't. And I'm like to me, the the bigger concern that I have post COVID is the mental health piece. That is already was already a huge problem in this country that nobody wants to touch or talk about, and I just think that it it got on steroids over COVID, and yeah, it is it did, and for it's sure. about ready to become the biggest piece of the COVID pie across the world, not just in the United States, across the world. Because that in some ways, the United States was spared compared to others, right? And yes, we had a tremendous amount of loss, and I get that; I am not discounting that. But we didn't, we're didn't. we not facing what India has faced, and we're not facing what Spain had to face at mm-hmm. the very beginning in Italy. And I can't imagine what it's like for some of those people that have been locked up in their apartment for know, almost it, an entire year. I, I mean, even... every,
1: we all need that human connection yeah. more than ever, right? Yeah. And we need it personally um, for our mental uh, and spiritual health, and we need it in business. I mean, you typically don't innovate by yourself. That's right. Right? And oh. so that... That's the X factor. Is mm-hmm. the human connection piece? And, wow,
0: the X factor. That's a great uh, way to put it.
1: I mean, that. it is because so many businesses are successful, but they're more like robots just working. Transactional. It. It's very just, transactional, yeah, it's trans- and uh, so many leadership teams are very transactional. And the ones that are performing at the highest level have that have have gone beyond just the transaction into the the really deep relationships. Yeah.
0: My next question is totally selfish um, because I'm so fascinated because it's not a world that I live in. You're now out of the owning piece and now serving on boards and being on boards of directors at what have you. What is that type of business leadership feel like and is to you versus being the CEO or the owner of your own company?
1: Well, there's there's, um, positives and challenges for me.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) The positive is that as a board member, you can... Use your experience, you know, decades of experience and and wisdom, and listen to what the leadership team of a particular company or, or nonprofit organization is dealing with, and provide advice and counsel and walk away. You know, oh, and you can okay. you can sprinkle some wisdom uh, or ask a key question uh, that nobody has that nobody else has asked, um, or no or or everyone else is afraid to ask. Yeah. And you can put that on the table and stimulate different level of thinking, or or you can help a an organization make a strategic decision, mm-hmm. but you're not actually getting your hands dirty in them. Sure. So, uh, and I love that because uh, I've worked with hundreds of companies across all industries, and uh, to be able to bring that perspective to these organizations is a lot of fun on the challenge side for me is that I'm, I've always been very hands-on. So, uh, to, I want to sometimes dig deeper than I need to, to dig, or I want to jump in and, and, uh, facilitate a workshop to solve a problem. And so I have to, uh, it's a new, new leadership, uh, lesson and level that, hmm. that I'm moving to from the lead to advise and the, from the dude you know <laughs> to
0: interesting <laughs> uh, so to me it sounds like I don't I, I, this sounds like the difference between being a parent and a grandparent like serving on a board of yeah, directors yeah sounds like Mm -hmm. grandparent like you or player to a coach player to a coach that's right
1: right and um i i uh like you uh, i think i was listening to one of your other podcasts and it's like you you coach and you coach and you coach and you plant these seeds hoping that eventually they get it and i'm mentoring a lot of entrepreneurs right now and i'm mentoring Mm -hmm. a lot of young leaders and i'm planting these seeds and i'm like okay surely, surely this person's going to get it next time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the information. Like, I'm
1: trying to serve it up on a silver platter, you know? I'm doing, like, just let me do it, you know? Yeah. So you, but you can't do it. You can't, right. I can't do it for the board. I can't do it for the leader. I can't do it for the entrepreneur. And that's, that's the challenge for me. It's a learning edge, as one of my cohorts used to say. <laughs> um, but I'm enjoying it because I have a lot more uh, freedom to sort of a piddle in a lot of different things as opposed to just being all into one company.
0: And it almost seems to me that the dabbling into these things might give you that one last thing you're going to do. That's going to like, you're going to, you're dabbling in a variety of different things with different ideas, with other brilliant people that are younger probably. And it might lead you to that one last great thing you're going to do. (laughs) Uh, and that's what to me, like that's why I've I'm so fascinated because it, I'm not on a board, um, but I I've always wondered what it would be like to to instead of being the doer, to being the advisee. Right. You know, this is what I would. It's it,
1: really interesting. I enjoy it.
0: Yeah, I would imagine it has to be pretty cool now that you've been successful on multiple fronts, and now you're going to take a less responsible role, so to speak. You're not you're not tied to it. But you still get to be, play a, a role in the success, and you get a chance to help others achieve their dreams. Yep. And it's, that's the coolest part. It's
1: really enjoyable. And I'll mention one thing to you about the sort of stage of life that I'm in. Uh, others may find this valuable. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine, when I first uh, you know left Ankara, I try not to use the word retirement because I'm so... No, yeah. Active still. Sure. But when I when I left Anchor, starting on this new chapter, a friend of mine said, Okay, she had heard, take a sheet of paper and that sheet of paper is your life. And when you're working, you draw a big circle in the middle and that's work. And everything else is just a little sprinkle around the edge. And when you're not working, you have the whole sheet of paper to create a mosaic. Oh, wow. And so what I've been doing is creating that mosaic and you can have equal sized bubbles of things. So board work and community work and helping entrepreneurs and spending time with family and friends and traveling and picking up golf again. And, That's right. You know that kind of stuff. So it's I'm uh, you know living in this world of mosaic where you're not diving in deep in that one big circle but you've got a lot of smaller ones. Fantastic. So I don't know if I'll have that one big thing. Maybe I can make an impact across a myriad of...
0: Maybe uh, that is a big thing.
1: That may be, Maybe that is the big thing. <laughs> maybe that is the big thing. I, I love that. Just don't have a blank sheet of paper. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have something on the paper. there have got to always be moving towards something,
0: right? So true, so true. Well, what is appearing to be the most important part of my podcast, based around the the feedback and the questions that I get through social media is this piece on perseverance. And if you listen to this podcast in minute 42, it sounds like it's been a straight shot from 17 year old girl going Nick voluntary all the way up to where you are today. But we'd be remiss to think that there hasn't been pitfalls and difficulties. And to me, the part that I keep hearing that people want to hear because people are struggling. We've just talked on that is that It wasn't easy. It wasn't like it was a a rose petaled path for you to the top. never is, right? No, it never is. What is the one part, what happened, one issue in your life that challenged your level of perseverance to a point that it maybe rocked the foundation a tiny bit, but once you conquered that, it steeled your resolve to know that you could handle anything that would come your way? What was your perseverance point?
1: Well, there are three, three or four that really uh, you know I, I always look back and say those were in, what those were um, big inflection points sure. and very difficult mm-hmm. points in my life I, I think I would point to when I went through a divorce. Um, I was in my first business um, and I, my boys were eight years old at the time, and I uh, was suddenly out on my own. And yeah. also a business owner, and it really it rocked me, rocked my confidence personally. Yeah. That yeah. that can certainly, um, you know, create that level of vulnerability. And it made me wonder: uh, should I really be pouring myself so much into into work, or should I be taking the time that I have the kids now, and? uh pouring myself in into that 100%. And that was a real difficult time mm-hmm. all the way around. Sure. And I think w- one of the things I said to my business partner as I worked my way through that was that I said, listen, I'm going to work full time, but I'm going to pick up the kids every day after school when I have them because we had 50-50 custody. And I said, if you ever feel like that I'm not doing my job, you let me know and I'll take a cut and pay. That was what I decided to do, and but I never let I never let that happen sure. because I I'm me. That's right. <laughs> you know I I made sure that I met my commitments to the business, but I also knew the importance of being the best mom that I could be for sure at that moment in time, and so there were a lot of things that came out of that. One um, uh, thing that came out of that was that I realized. Um, you know, there's so many women feel guilty about trying to figure out how to do both those things. And through that experience, I realized um, and I, I changed the narrative. I listened to Catherine Kanata's, uh, <laughs> you know, she changed the narrative. I changed the narrative one day to say, God put me on this earth to show my boys a strong, working, you know, female entrepreneur business person whatever whatever label you want to put on it but that is one of my purposes in life Beautiful. and from then I was not uh I was never guilty about it again I didn't make every soccer match I didn't make every golf match but I I, I know that I was a great role model for, for them in that regard yeah. and it gave me more resolve to continue to do what my life purpose was which was to Show them that, and mm. also to help a lot of other people through yeah. through the work that I did as an entrepreneur.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a big statement right there, because the I can imagine that the the feeling of divorce was sounds like failure. Right, I failed. I failed. And it takes a
1: while to get through that.
0: Yeah, and then you you're watching your your kids see you feel that. And they have to be able to feel it. Right. No and, then to, and then the, to be able to work through what is imagined pain and what's real is in the next navigating piece. Right. And that's where your confidence came back. Like you were rocked. And then you're like, wait a second. Some of these things that have manifested in my head were like ghosts of the future that right. I was worried about. Right. And then when you dealt with the things that were really difficult, much like... I'm going to reduce my work time because I'm going to be a great mother. And if that bothers you, I'm going to take a reduction in pay if I'm not worth what I'm said I was doing. Then you met those requirements or probably exceeded them actually. And then your confidence, like, wait a second, I can do this. Right. And really, and I think that we're all guilty of it. We, we, we prog- we, we're we bad predictors. Humans are bad predictors <laughs> of the future outcomes. Right, we are. We think sure. we are. We think we're awesome at it. And that's really just our Cro-Magnon brain trying to keep us surviving in a world that we no longer live in. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. That's really important, I think, for people to understand is that much of what we... The walls that we put up in the fear department are strictly fear. No, there's certainly a lot of it uh, we should be adherent to to pay attention to it but a, a lot of it you work through and like well that wasn't what I thought it was going to be right and then that picks up confidence and, and like, well, that's
1: the perseverance that yeah that happens and you pick up the confidence
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know these these define I I I call those defining moments in your life you know mm-hmm. you've got the and they're they're gut-wrenching it's uh, and they they rock your world and I, as I've looked back on all of those, they're also tremendous um, moments and times of growth, personal growth. Mm-hmm. And so, you have to remember that for the next one. (laughs) That's right. You know, every time you go through one of those, you come out stronger in some way. You just don't know what it is yet. Yeah. Um, And that was one of the ways uh, that I came through there.
0: Mm -hmm. Dr. Rotella has a great sentence, and it pertains to a lot of things in life. And And he says that, you know, if you follow the right processes and systems in your life, I guarantee you'll be successful. The only terrible piece about what I'm getting ready to say is that I can't tell you when (laughs) it will happen. And therein lies the, the patience that's required to have perseverance and resilience Mm -hmm. that allows you to see it till you get to the promised land, so to speak Mm -hmm. that most people, when they don't get there, it's because they felt like it wasn't going to work and they stopped before they got there and they probably were just right around the corner Right, and that is what I tried my best to to on my weaknesses. I'm like on, I know this is not what's happening is what's going on, is what I want to have happen, but I feel like I'm doing the right things. keep going, keep, keep going. going, no matter how many negative pushbacks I'm getting, and it's uh it's it, powerful
1: it is I can't think of a time that I've quit anything, yeah you know, so it to your point, pushing through and pushing through is. Um, is is what you do to, mm. to to get to to get to that next spot yeah. whatever that is
0: and I, I want the final piece on this before we shift to the things that you do to recharge um, I say this a lot and I, and I mean this but I, I I can hear it in your voice that you have a point on this on your way to the top, there are more feet on your head than there are hands reaching down to lift you up. And I feel like you're one of those people that are hanging over the ledge, reaching down, grabbing people by the back of their shirt, lifting them up. But I am sure on your way to the ascension that you've had, you've oftentimes felt like there were more feet on your head than (laughs) there were people trying to lift you up. What is it that you gained in your experience all the way through to where you are today that makes you be that person that reaches down to lift people up? and do you feel like what i just said is something that you've had to face in your life
1: i'm not sure i when you described all of that i also started i started picturing more people that lifted me up then stood on my head mm-hmm. so maybe i learned that from some some great mentors you know i had so many mentors in my career mostly informal mm-hmm. because i had the great Opportunity to watch so many great leaders and working with, with so many companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then had some, several formal that uh, were really key to lifting me up. So I think I learned that by others lifting me up. Um, and uh, realizing that it was my responsibility to do that yeah. for others. Personally, I get just more joy and satisfaction out of lifting someone else up and helping them be successful mm-hmm. than the opposite. I mean, there's just just never been in my blood to step on somebody. Yeah. <laughs> you know, It's I, really more about helping. So maybe it was that, that I learned that from uh, other people. Um, I could name them, but sure. I won't, won't go into all that. But mm-hmm. I think that's something that I learned and watched.
0: Interesting. Well, the second half of the show, is a, now that we've talked about all the things that use up your battery power, <laughs> with, I like to talk about things that you do to recharge. And historically speaking, they've been the things that bring a lot of like-minded people together for certain things. So which is why concerts and and theater and sporting events and family events are always the things that people use as their cup filler. So when you were growing up, who were your favorite bands or musicians that you listened to? What was your your favorite music? (laughs) And what do you listen to now?
1: Oh gosh. Well... I won't even be able to name half of the ones that I list listened to back then. But a real funny one is Bread. Remember Bread way back in the day? No. He played all these love songs. My my husband listened to entirely different things when he was. I, did, I never listened to Led Zeppelin and all uh-huh. of that. Yeah. Um, today I love a lot of lot of music. We we listen to country and pop and folk and uh, you know so all the country. Uh, in fact, we're we're. Hoping to see Eric Church uh, in New York oh. in December, we just got invited to, to go do so that. Good. So, uh, and then I love the off the beaten path, you know, mus- musicians as well. We'll go listen to the Bluebird in the Round or any mm-hmm. any number of places to just listen to songwriters and
0: it's so, so amazing. That I love it all. That Bluebird thing is such a mm-hmm. fascinating and cool experience. Mm-hmm.
1: It is, it, and and just any music that you turn on just has an amazing ability to change your mood mm-hmm. so uh, you know I, I love it all
0: Yeah, it's we haven't been
1: to concerts lately but we've been trying to think about what we can do locally yeah. but what's, the best,
0: what's the best concert you've ever been to? oh gosh what's your favorite one?
1: well I'm not a huge concert goer I, I love Train we, we've been to Train oh, yeah. Kings of Leon it was amazing even you know I would say anything at the Ryman I, we saw Amos Lee. I was on the front row of Amos Lee. It's almost more about the experience at the moment than the particular artist, right? So once, true. Once uh, I sat on the front row of the Ryman, I told Randy, I'm, I'm sorry, but I don't want to go back to the Ryman unless I'm sitting in the front. <laughs> so we saw a little big town in the front row. Wow. And, uh, those, those were awesome experiences, which it, you can only get in Nashville, that's right? The,
0: that's the church, so to speak. Yes. I've seen... I've seen a bunch of concerts there. I have front row for Matchbox 20. Awesome. And that was it. Was funny. That Matchbox 20 show that I saw, they came out for the encore. they only have one album out at this time, right? They're really popular. And they they say, okay, we're going to bring out a, a couple of artists. You're getting ready to know them. I guarantee it. They're superstars. We're going to sing two songs with them. Ladies and gentlemen, the Dixie Chicks. And I'm <laughs> like, the who? <laughs> and it didn't take, but like three months later, and the Dixie Chicks That's were really the cool, isn't biggest it? thing ever. And country music. And yep. I was like, but I've seen Coldplay there. That was unbelievable. I saw Eddie Vedder there. That was unbelievable. I saw Keb Moe. and Oh
1: yeah, we did too. And uh, I saw Chris Stapleton in a very small venue before he was popular. Oh, when how he good was with was the Steel that? Drivers, and oh. it was a small venue in Franklin. It was amazing. That's the best when you've got a, a little, you know, 100 person show uh, that you're and so that was super cool
0: that is awesome man. that's a person like i want to see he and luke combs that's the two people on my list that i want to see Mm -hmm. next and zach brown those are my three country acts that i haven't seen live that i know put on a heck of a show and i cannot wait to see we went to one of those
1: crossroads filming oh i wish they would do that again um it was steve miller I think Steve Miller and Kenny Chesney. I'll have to go back and see. It was hilarious just because the two genres coming together. And I loved that too.
0: That is awesome. Really great stuff. Yeah. When you were growing up, who were your favorite tennis players?
1: I'd say Chris Evert. Yeah. Um, Jimmy Connors and, and McEnroe too, but really Chris Everett was, I mean, she was the role model at the mm-hmm. time. Um, and I, I was more of a baseline kind of, Player, I'm left hander, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I, uh, I loved my two handed backhand, and uh, she had a two handed backhand too. I think mm-hmm. um, I just I, I really related to her, and it was funny though. I used to watch tennis and my sisters and I would make more comments about what jewelry they had on and their outfits and all that stuff as much as we did, you know, did they win that match? I have no idea, but it was, it was funny. Uh, But I loved watching her play. Um, Like I said, I felt that connection because I was more of that baseline player than.
0: It's interesting because when I was was growing up, that was in the same era. Right. So I love Martina Navratilova.
1: Yeah, she she was was, amazing.
0: She was left handed. I'm left handed. And uh, I I don't know what it is. She was tough
1: as nails, too. Yeah, she
0: was methodical. And she was, I love the way she carried herself. That's the thing. When I look back at all the people that I idolized, it's how they carried themselves. As I've done a bunch of these interviews and talked about, I'm like, oh, who do you think are your Mount Rushmore of tennis players? And who do you think is the greatest female tennis player? Uh, I'm talking about the female Mount Rushmore of tennis. Oh,
1: <laughs> well, Martina, for sure. Mm-hmm. Chris, um, Serena, no doubt. Uh, maybe Coco will be there someday. Maybe. I've been really enjoyed watching her lately. No doubt. Um, I don't know who else would you name?
0: Would you say Steffi Graf?
1: Yeah, Steffi, for sure.
0: Yeah, I think that, that's a good one. Chris yeah. Evert, Martina. Steffi, Steffi and Serena. Serena. and Not yeah. that Venus doesn't deserve some recognition, but Serena. No,
1: but those four for sure. Oh, yeah. yeah.
0: And I almost, I can't quite tell, although the record shows that Serena has to be number one. I would have loved to have seen a match between her and Steffi Graf in their prime. Yeah, that would have been fun. Because I think that Steffi Graf was, well, I call her fine German engineering she was emotionless. Yes. She was Which tough. was really
1: helpful. That's that mental edge that, you, that you've got at that level. Yeah, mm-hmm. she was tough.
0: And I never knew the who she was until I read Open with Andre Agassi. And he goes into great detail about how she deserves most of the credit for his 2.0 version of his greatness. And that really put her in a very high place for me. Because she she dethroned my favorite Martina, so I was like, I'm, I don't like Steffi Graf, <laughs> but she she deserves a ton of accolades because she didn't search for accolades. Yeah,
1: she was great, quiet quiet greatness.
0: Yeah, yeah, so true. What's the greatest sporting event you watched in person?
1: Auburn beating Alabama. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which game?
1: I mean, I went to Vanderbilt, but, but my husband Randy went to went to Auburn. Uh, it was the kick six. Go. Oh, my yeah. God. So the one cool. second left and all of that. So it was so awesome. Two weeks ago. We were just talking about
0: that. <laughs> two I weeks mean, ago. how can
1: you quit talking about it?
0: Yeah, it's, I sat here with the tight end, CJ Uzoma. And I said, hey, man, what was that like? He goes, Virgil, you have no idea. We're running down the sideline on that return, and I see bodies flying. And I'm like, I'm screaming, and I look over my shoulder. Is there a flag? You know, <laughs> you know, and just listening to CJ tell me like the live stream that was going through his head as he's running down the sideline with that guy, and the whole place has gone crazy. And like, is there going to be a penalty? And then like the, the dog pile, and just hearing all that story. to me, because I literally despise Alabama, I <laughs> respect the heck out of Nick Saban for sure. True. That's but very true. I'm so over. <laughs> the Crimson Tide, <laughs> but, but that it was, was a, a great, oh, oh it was what a, a great game. moment! Yeah, what a game! That's
1: perseverance. That's perseverance, <laughs> and it's
0: those victories when you're taking on the greatest, possibly, arguably the greatest coach of all time, arguably the greatest program of all time, and it's your arch rival. I mean, that's an incredible ingredient right, right there for that moment. I still think that it might be a fun the, year. That might be the greatest overwhelming moment in in college football history you know yeah. something i was talking to him about if, if is that a bigger moment than the game cal stanford when the band came on the field of finishes and i think that it is because of the gravity of the game yeah
1: it was it was an incredible night oh my gosh <laughs> but it you, you never it had been so loud in, in that stadium we it
0: was i can only imagine so fun oh, oh that's so great really great are you a big reader
1: I read a little. I read for fun, yeah. uh, but not not much for fun. I mostly re- read for business. <laughs> what, what are
0: the What are the books that really set you up for success in your mind?
1: Well, it's probably not a good question for me because I've never been a big business book reader. So uh-huh. when I read for business, mm-hmm. I'm reading the work stuff as opposed to how to do business mm, interesting uh, I, for whatever reason I never been a. a I, I quote a lot of them <laughs> 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 I skimmed a lot of them yeah. but I never never really did that I ended up learning maybe I'm more of a tactile mm. learner where I'm learning by doing and, and sure. learning by um, watching others and, mm. and uh, having lots of CEO to CEO lunches so I, I learned more uh, through that approach, as opposed to the school book book yeah. approach,
0: that's oh, that's interesting because I'm a I'm a person who learns best by doing than than by reading or Me hearing. Too. But I've probably read I read three books from K through college, and I've probably read 800 since <laughs> I graduated. And most of it is about how the mind works mm-hmm. and how do I how can I get somebody to perform better than they ever thought they could because of the limits that they put on themselves. Right. And an understanding how the brain transfers muscle memory to muscles and blah 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 whatever. Did
1: you read Psychocybernetics that book back in the day?
0: I did not did not know about psycho cybernetics, but I did watch cybernetics and like all the the things that went into it. But I don't remember it. Being it's
1: called I think it's called psycho cybernetics. And my tennis coach, who was amazing when I was growing up, Fritz Now. Before I mm-hmm. got to Voltaire's, um, he had us read this book, and you might you might look it up. But I'm it's all about it the uh, positive visualization. So there were three studies. You know, one that uh, kids just practice shooting baskets you know Mm -hmm. and and playing basketball and then another study where they didn't practice shooting at all but they just visually sat there the same number of minutes a day and what and visually thought about a basket the ball going in the basket and then the third group did both and they uh, then tested how much they uh, improved and this group in the middle improved significantly more Mm -hmm. both by exercising, by doing it, practicing it, and visually. So he would have us visualize the ball going over the net every Mm -hmm. single time. And it was fascinating. Yeah.
0: Like to me, the thing that I love to look is the face of a seventeen year old come in here and think that the answer is in the mechanics of the golf swing. Right. Or the mechanics of the putting stroke or the chip shot, that whatever it is that they're feeling is lacking for them winning. And I always say, Well, today we're gonna talk about the the mental management and the pre-shut routine and your visualization. They're like, oh god. Here, <laughs> Snore. Come right. on. Oh well, it can't be. But it is it's so, so important. So important. Did, did, where did you did you feel like it was became important to you instantly when you were uh, a teen in tennis? Or did you when did it the visualization piece smack you upside the head and say, oh, this is actually a major ingredient to this soup, not like two pinches of salt.
1: Yeah, I was taught that when I was a teenager, but I'm not sure that I believed it. Mm-hmm. Maybe really until I got to the business world. Interesting. I, but funny. I was taught that, mm-hmm. and I did. I probably didn't do it as much as I should. I think you know. Because I do believe there's so much power in it now. Isn't yeah. that funny? I guess it
0: comes with wisdom. I think also it also comes with the environment that you're in. Like the environment can cause you to visualize more. Because maybe some things are out of your control. Right. And you, your intellect and your, your training makes you think, okay, I can't control this right now. Right. But I can't. I can't
1: practice my way to it.
0: Yeah. But I can visualize Mm -hmm. where I want to go what that
1: possibility is yeah Yeah, I think you might be right that's the the situation is different yeah right
0: so you just said like you because I've noticed in in competing at golf I the better I get is when the conditions get so difficult that normal golf shots aren't the shot (laughs) like if the wind's blowing 30 miles per hour I have bizarrely played my greatest rounds of golf in the last 10 years in the harshest conditions.
1: That's interesting.
0: Because it forces me into a level of visualization and creativity based around the conditions that I'm playing in and the golf course that I'm playing. That I'm like, I can't just say, okay, hit my 7-hour, 175. Right. 175. I'm 175, in am 7-hour.
1: You can't be an autopilot. You yeah. have to be more aware. You have to be really thinking and calculating and, and using that creative. Yeah, you have to yeah.
0: be engaged immersively Mm -hmm. in the total package and to me one of the things i try to pass on to these kids is that if you want to know why 197 kids that i've taught have played college golf and only one of them play on tv you have to understand that brant snedeker did things differently than anybody i've ever been around he is not the most talented golfer that i've ever taught he might not even be in the top 10 most talented golfers that i've ever taught but that dude has something inside of him that is—it was—it was—it's immeasurable, but it's so overwhelmingly measurable, and it's in his head. What, how he visualizes his success has absolutely nothing to do with his past. He's the most in the now person that I've ever met. That's awesome. And I tell the story because it, it so blew me away, and it became so obvious that I made the right decision in my career. We never lost a golf tournament together. I've played in a handful of tournaments with Brandon as my partner. We never lost. Sometimes we won by 15. And so there's this one tournament we played in, and it happened to be over his 21st birthday. So we play the first round, and we're winning by six. And we played, obviously played great. And then it's his 21st birthday, so he got home. About thirty minutes before we were going to tee off, and he wasn't in the best shape as he showed up to the first tee. Had his first
1: beer the night. The that's night. right.
0: That's right. And it appeared because we were really about a minute away from being disqualified because he wasn't there. And I'm I'm angry. I'm frustrated. And he shows up, and we both hit terrible tee shots on the first hole, and our the team that's closest to us is sitting perfect. So we're in the trees. We're really pretty close together. And I'm fuming because he's late. He A bunch of different things. So he goes, what are you thinking here, coach? And I said, well, I may, he knows that I'm angry. I said, "I think what I'm going to do here. I'm going to get this up over the tree to the right side of the green. And let's see what happens. What are you going to do, Brent? He goes, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to chip the ball out underneath this tree right here in front of the green. And then I'm going to chip it in and we're going to break these fools before it even starts. (laughs) And I'm looking, at like, is that what you're thinking? (laughs) And like the stone faced, what I call the stone faced killer he's like, yeah, what are you (laughs) thinking? And then he literally chipped chipped the seven out in front, underneath the tree, out in front of the green. And I hit my shot up over the trees, and it didn't, it wasn't a bad shot, but it wasn't what I was intending. And then he chipped it in, exactly as he said that he would. And he gave me that, that little look, like, told you. They both missed, and then we, we went on and trounced them. <laughs> and we broke their heart, and he told me what was going to happen before it happened. And he visualized it before he That's did
1: powerful. it. That's
0: powerful. And I'm like, that to me, right there, tells me everything. Because I've been around great Players,
1: but you're right. It's that you, you're not you're not bringing the past into it, you know, whether it's personal or business. The past is the past. If you bring that in, it can really limit. It limits you. Uh, but being in the here and now is also very difficult. <sighs> and then be, to be able to visualize the future, yeah, I mean, that's that's very cool. Yeah, to
0: me, that to me, that's why. That's why people are successful. That's why they're successful.
1: Yeah, they're always looking forward and they're always moving forward.
0: Looking out the looking out the windshield, not the rearview mirror. Yep. Very important. Uh, yep.
1: Love it.
0: How important is travel to you? You like love to... it. <laughs> what are your What are your favorite places that you've ever been? Oh my gosh,
1: Italy, no Italy. doubt. We 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 did a bucket list trip with our family, right? Uh, thank thankfully in 2019 before the pandemic. We have four children all together, and mm. we took them all plus a plus a girlfriend to Italy and uh, Florence, and we went to the Amalfi Coast and. We were in Tuscany, and and uh, we did a little bit of time in Rome, but doesn't matter. Italy has you know the food, the wine, yeah. um, love, love, great food, great wine, and and spending time with sure. with family. That was that was awesome.
0: Talk to me about the Amalfi Coast. What'd you feel? What'd you, oh, what'd you feel there?
1: Beautiful. Yeah, uh, we stayed in a house right on the cli- on a cliff overlooking the Mediterranean, and we we uh, had a private. Um, Boat one day that took us up and down the Amalfi Coast and into Positano and uh, you know just it's just beautiful. I mean yeah. there really aren't words to describe how beautiful I'm sure you've been. Yeah. But
0: no, I want to go. That's a that's a bucket list for me. There aren't many places left that I really really want to go, but that is one place. Stay that in I really,
1: Positano. 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 is so so much great food and. And shopping, and mm-hmm. the beauty of it, and uh, just the locale. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's fabulous. Interesting. Fabulous. Um, we, we went inland one day, and we went to a vineyard that these uh, Italian men, older than me, uh, brothers, um, had. Uh, they owned the, the vineyard, mm-hmm. um, and it was an amazing experience. Their wives were in the kitchen, and they cooked a full... Italian meal for us for lunch, oh, wow. and then we're tasting all these wines and sitting overlooking this beautiful, you know, vineyard, and the the vines are like they've been been there forever, so yeah. they're so thick and cool. Um, it was that was our best moment there, but we had so many great moments. Yeah.
0: That's so cool. Got to go. That's a bucket list for, sure. for me. Now you've touched on my favorite topic, which is wine. There aren't <laughs> many... I mean, I tell people all the time, why is my my podcast, if you listen to the intro, it's it's basically, it's understanding successful people and the, how it goes together with music and wine. Sport, music, and wine is my life. I tell people all the time, I think I know three things. It's a pretty like,
1: good life. <laughs> I, I think I know,
0: I know red wine really well. I know rock and roll really well. And obviously outside of golf, I can spit some stats on sports that make you head, make your head spin a <laughs> touch. Other than that, I don't spend much time talking in the know. I'm a listener outside of those three topics. What are your favorite wine regions and favorite wines that you've had?
1: Well, we went to Russian River Valley uh, right before the pandemic to mm-hmm. love, love the uh, Pinot Noirs mm-hmm. out there. Oh, so good. Um, and the Italian wines we, of course, enjoyed. Um and I I love uh, French the French white wines as well. Mm-hmm. Um I, I, I've gotten pickier as I've gotten older <laughs> yeah, don't we all <laughs> uh, and maybe can afford better bottles of wine so sure. I've gotten picky in that regard but I love white rose red bring it bring it on it's all it's all great but we we did take a trip in fact with Jeff uh, Factor and, and his wife right before the pandemic and got all the Russian River Valley wines awesome. and so there was a great little vineyard uh, called Renhop. Uh, the bird, Ren mm-hmm. Hop, and it was the coolest little place. And wow. I could drink that. I could definitely drink that every
0: night. That is so cool. But
1: like those special, the special small vineyards as mm-hmm. well as the...
0: The big ones. The
1: big ones, yeah.
0: I think to me, what wine means to me, because I was fortunate when I went to Mississippi State, they had wine appreciation. Cool. And it was one of... We didn't have one of those classes so at a, Vanderbilt. <laughs> in 90, <laughs> so in 96 is when I took the class. It was the fall of 96. Um. It was the only one that you could drink it, Cal Davis and Virginia Tech. you could taste it, but you had to spit it out
1: oh brother right so i took
0: I took it f- f- i 'm not going to lie, I took it for the buzz, I took it for the free buzz, <laughs> and I quickly learned uh, in the class that this was not going to be a normal class that yes, we were going to be tasting wines, but there was we were going to understand the the powerful combination of food and wine, mm-hmm. and then the tw- the the triple part, which is what that does to a room with people. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate because the teacher was a top 100 wine taster and a top 100 chef in the United States. Why he was in Starkville, Mississippi, right. is, a, is a whole <laughs> other conversation. But he, we sat down in the very first class. That wasn't the you know just like the intro. We studied Italy, and he cooked the food, and we served the wines, and he did it in a way in which this goes with this. Now, understand why this food brings out this flavor in the wine. Understand why this wine brings out the the seasonings or the ingredients in this food. I was like an addict from the as soon as we got so
1: awesome, isn't it? Oh,
0: and then of all the things that I've had a chance to do in my life, that bringing people together. It's those great bottles of wine with great food and a nice setting with your friends or people that you're really interested in that shift your life in such a positive way. Because, yes, the alcohol takes away some inhibitions and you get to hear maybe a deeper version of a story that you wouldn't have heard without it. But that's what it's all about is sharing these these gifts that we have in our life. Well,
1: that's the perfect recharge that you just described. I mean, that's... Where I love to be, yeah. You know, with whether it's family or friends, having a great meal and having a great bottle of wine, yeah. There's nothing so, better.
0: There is nothing better. <laughs> nothing. I just like to me. I'm a Bordeaux guy, and the Bordeaux styles, and I love. I mean, I love watching winemakers' impression of what O'Brien or Latour did to them, and how it comes out in South Africa, in Australia, California chile you know argentina to watch how much french wine has impacted my life but i'm in the golf industry to watch somebody who's got a passion for making wine and they took what they got from a legend in france and tried to put it into their right their own personal vision their art that's what i love yeah,
1: the stories behind
0: them. Yes, I'm a story guy. Like this... My musicians have to tell a story. The books, obviously everybody wants to tell a story, but there are certain people that are really good at telling stories within a book. And I love being around people that tell stories. I'm a story person. And to me, I love listening to people who are uh, aren't afraid to share their passions, no matter how far off they seem to be. <laughs> And the impetus behind their passion. Yeah, it's great. And that's, that's to me is the that's best. That's what it's about. That's what it's all about. Yep. The last question. Sure. We largely become, largely, the five people that we spent the most time with in our life. The people that impact our life is who we kind of meld ourselves to be. When you look back on your life right now, who are the five people? that impacted your life to help you be where you are today?
1: Oh, such a great question. Well, first, Randy, my yeah, husband. Yeah, he's awesome. I mean, it, it, I would not have had anywhere near the level of success in business if I had not been with him. And, you know, we've been together almost 20 years now, and we, we often reflect on how we both have helped each other elevate mm-hmm. our own performance. Yeah. So definitely that, the, the, the support there. And I know people say that, but this is, I, I, I understand it because I have, I've, I've been in an environment where that ne- didn't necessarily happen. So definitely Randy, uh, my sister, Joy, my older sister, Joy, mm-hmm. she's, uh, one that, um, helped me see some things in myself that I could, that I couldn't see myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, my friend Catherine McElroy, who helped start C3 with me, would be one. Um, I could definitely name more than five. Um, I
0: understand. And, um, and you can. Um, this is your show. <laughs> <laughs> this is your show. Well,
1: I'll, I'll name two more. Uh one business mentor uh, who was really a life mentor Jean Fort she was the first headmaster at Oak Hill uh-huh. and she led Peabody School at Vanderbilt for a number of years but more importantly she was an entrepreneur and I learned from her as I started my first business she's one of those that picked me up and and that lifted me and helped helped me in, in business and in life. And I think the last one that I would mention is all the way back to that coach in, in high school, Fritz. Mm-hmm. His name is Fritz Now, N-A-U. Super cool guy. He's the one that talked about visualization. And, and he said to me when I was young that, uh, mark my words, you will get a better college scholarship than either one of your sisters. And I'm sure he saw me at a low confidence point when he when he said that. And I ended up doing that. And I think that the, there's power in in these words that and that whether it's a coach or a sister or a mentor, um, you know, or a spouse, um, there those whispers and those moments uh where you need it the most when somebody says something to you. And I think that um that all five of those in different points in my life and in different ways Um, lifted me up and helped me.
0: I try to tell people all the time how I view my life. I don't know if I'm impacting one or a million. All I know is that every day that I I wake up, I'm imagining that I'm going on stage and I'm going to put the best version of myself out there every single day, knowing full well that some day's best is better than others' best. Mm -hmm. But to know that the power of somebody's words can totally shift not just one person, but ultimately it could shift the entire world depending on the moment. Right. And every day I try to make a golf lesson more than a golf lesson. Every day I try to make a podcast different than any podcast you've ever been on. And if I'm going to public speak, I want to feel like I'm talking about something that nobody ever thought a golf guy would talk about. (laughs) I'm trying to do... Right, on a on a scale that is not predictable. And the power of words and encouragement is unbelievable. Because I know what it meant to me. I think that's probably why I'm so that way.
1: Mm-hmm. Is and that- so how many how many people will list us as one of their five, you know? And that, so that's really what the rest of my life's about. Not yeah. not that I'm trying to have a compete for that, yeah. <laughs> to be on someone's list, but yeah. to uh, help others and, yeah. um, and be that coach or that advisor yeah. or that mentor to help others succeed.
0: Yeah, I think that you said that like, when somebody asked me not long ago, what of all of the accomplishments that I've had, what's the greatest one? And I sat there and thought about it for a second. And I said this, I've been the best man in three different people's wedding. That might be the greatest honor that I could ever imagine, to be the best man for three people. That's a huge responsibility, but it's also, it means so much to me because people mean so much to me. And it's bigger than golf. It's bigger than winning or losing. It's about life and experiencing and sharing it with others because there's so many people that don't realize how awesome they are because maybe they're in a field that doesn't get as much accolade as others. Right. But humans are awesome. Don't watch the news because you you might think that people aren't awesome. But a vast majority (laughs) of the people that
1: humans are awesome. Humans are good. (laughs) Yes, they are.
0: Well, Beth, I cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule to come here and share your story with me and my listeners. Congratulations, and for your past, your now, and where you're going in the future.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Have a great day.
0: Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website, www.curemich.com. Cure. Cannabis used research and education. On the Verge is produced by Chase Akers. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode.